from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> We've come now at the final week in the season of Epiphany, and we have come to Transfiguration Sunday. And what a wonderful passage we've read this morning. If you were listening during the songs, you might have recognized that we sang songs that were related to the glory of Jesus Christ as he asks a particular question to Peter, and that question is then answered by Peter only to just a few days later then be demonstrated in 
in, uh, in, in public, in, in, in person. The point of the transfiguration and celebrating it yearly is to recognize the glory of Jesus Christ, not just in His miracles and what He did, but in His person and the excellencies of who He is. And so Luke has recorded this account that we might understand that Jesus is not a mere man. This text answers a great question in the modern era. Modern notions of who Jesus Christ is relegate Him to a mere man who taught moral teachings, who maybe did, perhaps if we could trust the accounts, some powerful wonders, and is a wise sage or a teacher. But Jesus Christ is not just a mere man. No, this passage demonstrates Him as God in the flesh. Jesus, as Peter confesses, is the Christ of God, the Messiah who God was who God chose, the chosen one. And in this passage, we not only see him as Messiah, but also the only begotten Son of God. The reason a passage like this is so important to the modern church is that estimates say, according to a particular survey that was released by Ligonier Ministries this year, that approximately 80% of evangelicals, when considered the question of is Jesus Christ a created being, they answered that Jesus Christ is the highest created being by God. I want you to imagine this for just a moment, brothers and sisters. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And the modern church says 78% of the modern church answered the question that Jesus is the highest That is to say, he's the greatest being among the echelon of beings, and yet this passage puts forth Jesus Christ as God in the flesh, the only Son of God, himself divine. And it is this dilemma in the modern era that this passage answers. But the problem is not just that 78% of us answer the question incorrectly, The problem also is that God's people often do not recognize the glory and excellency of Jesus Christ. It's one thing to get the question right on the test. It's a totally different thing to get the the question right in the moment of disobedience or obedience. We, God's people, often dismiss the vital importance of hearing Christ's words daily. This passage not only puts forth Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Messiah of God, but the key words that Christ said is, whoever is ashamed of my words, and then later as his father says, this is my, my beloved son, as some of the Gospels record, God then says the most important phrase for our passage this morning, listen to him. God is demonstrating in this account that Jesus is not only his son, but he was the prophet who was to come into the world. He is the prophet to whom we must listen and obey. To that end, I want to look at this passage in three ways and then apply it in the fourth. First, the question of who is Jesus? Who is Jesus Christ as God and man in the flesh, perfectly obedient as the mediator, but also the Son of God? Then Jesus' call to his disciples to deny yourself and follow me. Later, the phrase that the, that the patriarchs Moses and Elijah were saying with Jesus about an exodus or a departure, as the ESV translates it, the departure that was to be accomplished. 
I love this phrase in the way that Luke records it. He, he doesn't just say the exodus that he would experience. No, he says there's an exodus that Christ is going to accomplish. And then what it means for us as Christ's people, according to the words of Peter, we'll, it's, it wasn't in the reading today, but we'll be going to 2 Peter 1 at the end to hear, what second, to hear what the Apostle Peter said of his own reflection upon this passage and how he answers, Peter answers a problem that his hearers and, and we today might have. Oh, that we could have been on the mountain to see Jesus' glory. And yet Peter answers that with a greater privilege. We have a greater privilege than being upon the mountain. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which we would do well to pay attention. That is what Peter directs us to. And so this, this whole passage is not just demonstrating Jesus as the divine Son of God. It's de- demonstrating Him as the one to whom our obedience will be measured and, and it will be required of us. Jesus had a habit of praying privately. And here in this passage, we, we begin this passage understanding that Jesus was away praying and He took His disciples with Him. He asks them a vital question, and the most important thing we must see from this question is that is, this is a question which all men give an answer to. It is not possible to avoid the question, who do you say that I am? Jesus first asks the disciples, who do, you say that I, uh, who do the crowd say that I am? But then he moves from that answer to who do you say that I am? In verse 18, it says, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. We've seen how Jesus had a pattern and a way of life in prayer, and here he was bringing his disciples. They, they were supposed to be learning of him and, and following him. He brings them into his habit of prayer And it is in the place of private prayer with God, secret, secluded prayer, not public prayer, that Jesus then begins to move to the heart of of reality with Christ. Who do you say that I am? In verse 19, they said, they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old have risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. What he means by the Christ is the word, the Messiah, the one who was anointed by God to sit on the throne of his father, David, the one who was going to usher in a a new, as the Jews understood it in that day, a new golden age of obedience and, and faithfulness and blessing upon the people of Israel. He was the one that God was putting forward to remove the Romans and to throw off the waywardness of Israel. And yet, what Peter answers is not just this idea of a Messiah that has arisen, but the Messiah of God. Not a self-proclaimed or self-ordained Messiah, but one that God was demonstrating in public as the Messiah. Peter, of course, answers correctly. And we see from this question that Jesus' desire is that his disciples would know who he is. Jesus is asking his disciples, who do you say that I am? Not only what is your public confession, but what is your doctrine of who I am? The people do not know the truth in this passage. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. Others say one of the prophets has come back to life and is now doing wonders among Israel. But the, the thing that we have to know, brothers and sisters, deluded as we are as, as Americans, the vox populi, the voice of the people, is not the truth. 
The, pot, the modern notions of who Jesus Christ is as a moral teacher or some narrative archetype or some philosophical necessity or someone in whom we put our highest ideals but isn't a real person, none of those ideas of Jesus Christ in the modern era define who he is. The true question which Christ asks is, who do you say that I am? What do you think about me? What are you willing to confess of me in front of men? The reason that Peter answers correctly and the people cannot answer correctly at this time is that the gospel had not gone forth in power and in clarity. Truly, some of these people likely would have come to know who Jesus Christ was during the preaching of the apostles. But at this time, Peter has been given divine revelation of who Jesus is. Jesus is not apprehended or conceived of in our minds by seeing him physically. One of the interesting coincidences is how much resonance there was between the Sunday school hour and the passage. There, maybe someone was planning that. I wasn't. Um, but, but the point is that all of these people had seen Jesus in the flesh, and they, no, they did not know who he was. They thought he was John the Baptist or Elijah or another one of the prophets or patriarchs. In Matthew's recording of this event, Jesus answers Peter. It says, he says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, or Peter, Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. People cannot come to Jesus Christ without the Father revealing to them who the Son of God is. This is why prayer is so important in evangelism. One of the greatest things that we do as a church when we send people out on Friday nights is to pray for them and pray with them as they're going. Unless the Father reveals, you cannot see who Jesus is. You may even know the propositional truth that Jesus is the Messiah, but unless the Father reveals it to you by the Holy Spirit of your need for that Messiah, you cannot know who Jesus is. Jesus' question, who do you say that I am, is both a profound question, it is a deep question, but it is also simultaneously deeply unsettling to us. Because Jesus here is asking a question about our perspective of reality. Who do you say that I am is not just a question about doctrine, but to put it a different way, what am I worth to you, Peter? Our answer to this sort of question, understanding the aspect of this sort of question, is not just what we say with our lips, but that which we express with our lives. Jesus is not just a Savior on Sundays. He is not just worthy to be worshipped in, co in congregational corporate worship, as glorious and as wonderful that corporate worship may be. One of my deep joys of being a part of Grace Christian Fellowship is the, the congregation's passion for worshiping the Lord. But the point that I'm trying to make right now is that Jesus is not just to be proclaimed publicly. You are proclaiming what you think about Jesus Christ in your private obedience. To put it a different way, you are constantly ask, answering the question, who do you say that I am? By every deed, by everything that you do, you are answering whether or not you are listening to him or not. In verse 21, it says, And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 
As soon as Peter answers who Jesus is as the Messiah, Jesus explains exactly what that Messiah will do. Peter gave the correct answer, but in Peter's economy of who the Christ was to be, he did not understand the Christ, the Messiah, as one who was called to come and suffer for the sake of the sins of the people and to be rejected by all the people. The Messiah and the understanding of the Messiah in the Second Temple Judaism period was that he was going to sit on the throne of his father David, and unlike David, who was persecuted in his kingship, this Messiah would be received in his kingship. They recognized the Messiah or the expectations of the Messiah to be expelling the Romans and bringing upon a new, not Pax Romana, not the peace of Rome, but the peace of the kingdom of God. And truly, the Christ, Jesus Christ, did bring the peace of God, but he did not bring it apart from his death. As soon as Peter answers the correct definition, then Jesus gives the meaning of what that word says or what that word entails. The Messiah is not just the one that God demonstrates as approved. He is the one that God himself rejects in order to take away the sins of the people. Knowing that his hour to die is at hand, is close at hand, Jesus warns his disciples not to proclaim him as the Messiah for a short time. He does not mean to say that they are never to preach the gospel, never to announce to the people who he is truly, but rather that they must pause, for the time is short until he will be killed. The point is clear. Jesus is desiring that his disciples would know who he is and what he will do. That is to say, who he is in his person, what makes him tick, what motivates him in his obedience to the Father. He is not going to just accomplish deliverance for Israel in a general sense, but no, he is going to do it at the cost of his life. He will personally accomplish deliverance for Israel. He will be the Christ. He will demonstrate the righteousness of God, but it will cost him his life. Jesus then, at this point in the narrative, calls a multitude to himself to charge them to count the cost of discipleship. This is one of those things where the differences between the Gospels are quite helpful. Luke omits the important detail. He does say that he calls the people to himself, but the other Gospel writers make it clear that Jesus and the disciples were on the mountain, and the crowds were flocking to Jesus, and so they descend from the mountain, and then Jesus addresses the people. For the last few weeks, we've been looking at how Jesus is fulfilling the type and pattern that Moses established, that Moses and the elders of Israel go up onto the mountain. They hear from God, they commune with God, and God thunders His Word and His law down from the mountain for the people to hear. And so the Sermon on the Plain in the last few weeks, we, we saw how Jesus had come down the mountain and was giving new blessings and curses. He was redoing the law. He was putting the law into force by repetition. And here he calls this group of people to himself and explains what it will take to come into the promised land, so to speak. And he said to all, that is more than the disciples, the, the, the multitude that he gathered to himself, if anyone would come up after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life, notice that, that statement, would, for whoever would save his life will lose it. 
but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus calls this crowd of people to recognize a radical requirement in self-denial. The Christian faith is essentially a faith of self-denial. This is why the prosperity gospel is such a tragedy in the country right now and as we're exporting it to the nations around the world because the fundamental truth of coming to Christ is a recognition of your own unworthiness for any blessing. So to come to Christ in order that you might receive blessing is at odds with the central proposition that you are in need of a Savior, that you have nothing good in you to commend yourself to God. Jesus then calls His disciples to recognize they must deny themselves. Not only are they called to lay down their sins, but they're called to lay down their graces. What do I mean by that? We cannot consider ourselves great and come to Christ. We cannot consider ourselves worthy of being served and come to Christ. Jesus says, whoever would come up after me must deny himself. The imitation of Jesus Christ that he calls for here to take up one's cross, to deny oneself, is an imitation of Christ's deeds, what he did externally, by imitating his motivation. What do I mean by that? Jesus says to his disciples, take up your cross, deny yourself. This is exactly what Jesus did. In the very context of these verses, Jesus is not using a metaphor. When he says that the Son of Man will will suffer, be mistreated, will be killed, he means to say that he's going to be rejected by the nation and rejected by the Romans, and he will fall under the corporal punishment, excuse me, capital punishment of crucifixion upon a cross. And when we hear these words, take up your cross, we instantly turn them into metaphor. But brothers and sisters, the context of this verse is not metaphor. The context for Jesus' call to take up your cross and deny yourself, of course, must be lived out in a metaphor capacity. We must recognize that Jesus doesn't mean we're actually to kill ourselves on a cross. He means that you must embrace the means of self-denial. Jesus trusted that the Father would vindicate him by raising him from the dead. The faith of Jesus Christ was that he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He knew that he would not be held captive by the pangs of death because it was impossible for him to be held captive by it. And so he triumphed over death, and yet he did not triumph over death by circumventing death. He triumphed over death by going through death. Jesus says, if anyone would save his life, Notice, he doesn't say if anyone wants to or anyone tries to, if anyone desires to save his life. Also, notice that he doesn't say it's possible to save your life. You must recognize that it is not possible to sustain your own life. This is what Jesus did on the cross. He gave up his life, and now he has life in himself forever. 
By forfeiting himself, he didn't just give up his life, but he was rewarded by the Father. And by, by giving up his life, he has now gained the whole host of the Holy Church of God, that great grand communion of saints throughout all the ages. Jesus gave up everything and now has received from the Father his glorious people, who he considers everything, who he considers worthy to have made an exchange for. Jesus, therefore, calls his disciples to embrace the means of death daily. By life, that is, by those who wish to save their life, I believe that Jesus has in mind everything that concerns life. That is to say, goods, pleasures, family, reputation, money. Whoever wants to save his reputation must lose his reputation. Whoever wants to save his family must, in another place he says, must hate them. That means to consider obedience to God is so far greater, so far more important that if your family comes between you and Christ, you count them as no regard compared to Christ. Whoever wants to save his treasure must lose his treasure. You cannot keep your money. You cannot keep your goods. You cannot keep your car. I have a wonderful car. It's a 2004 Jetta that my father graciously bought for me when I returned from college. It is so rusted out underneath that 2004 Jetta that when I go over a bump, I hear... <laughs> it's, it, it, is a great, it is a great sound. It is a persistent reminder that my car is rusting away. Now, if you like cars, that's not... My point isn't to pick on cars. Our computers do the same things, and so do our clothing, and so do our bodies, Everything breaks down. If you want to save your life, you're going to have to lose your life. But if you're trying to save your life, you won't retain it at all. Jesus here calls his disciples to give up everything in their lives for his sake and to do what he has done for them. That is to say, they not only imitate what he did, they imitate how he did it. He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Are you entrusting your life persistently to the care of God, or are you trying to save your life? I try to keep my Star Wars references to a minimum, <laughs> but in A New Hope, in the first of the Star Wars movies to be released, Princess Leia rebukes Grand Marf Tarkin, who is uh, one of the Imperial generals, and she says, and I have to paraphrase here, it's been many years, that the tighter you try to close your grip, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. I actually love that quote because it's fairly biblical. In the Bible, God has given two promises to Abraham, that your descendants will be like the stars and your descendants will be like the sand. And the picture that she is using in that metaphor is saying, you're trying to hold on to galaxies, who do you think you are? I actually think it's a veiled Revelation 1 quote, but we don't have time. <laughs> the point is that if you try to hold on to that which you are trying to sustain, you will never hold on to it. It will slip out of your hands. And yet Jesus calls us to embrace the cross in our life daily. The apostles understood this calling and literally obeyed it, most of them being crucified. We have, from church tradition, we understand that Mark was crucified and Peter was crucified upside down and other martyrs were 
Uh, For example, they attempted to boil John in oil, and they could not do it. He wouldn't die, and so they exiled him to Patmos. We understand that they literally obeyed this, but they also metaphorically obeyed this. In Galatians 6.14, Paul writing to the Galatian church, I want you to think carefully about this, but far be it from me to boast in anything except for in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, now get this part, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Has the world been crucified to you? Do you recognize the importance of what Paul is saying? He's saying the power, the recognition that I had in Judaism, the prestige that I might get by being a teacher among the Greeks, the power that I could have wielded being a Roman citizen and being involved as a politician in that culture, everything that Paul had, he considered it as worthless compared to knowing Jesus Christ and to being reconciled to Him and to receiving a righteousness that comes by faith through Jesus Christ. Paul says the world, the things of the world, are quite literally, to use a modern English phrase, they are dead to me. In fact, I I think that phrase in English comes from this notion. Whenever someone says in a hateful way, that person is dead to me, they are saying, I have so rejected that person in my life that I've considered them as not mattering anymore, not being worth talking to anymore. And Paul says that I now consider the world crucified to me and I to the world. The point is that Paul, who later would be martyred, was living in a way that his martyrdom had already taken place. The things of the world had been so crucified to him by the cross of Christ that he was considered crucified himself. Verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus here is warning those who would be ashamed of the folly of Christ against self-delusion. He says in this passage that it is impossible to love him and all that he is and be publicly ashamed of his words. Those who are ashamed of Jesus and his words are those who are trying to seek to, to save their life. Remember, in the context, he's just said, if anyone would save their life, he must lose it for my sake. And then he goes on to say, if anyone is ashamed of me or my words, I will be ashamed of him when I come in the power of the Father or the glory of the Father and with these holy angels. In the context of the first century, this was to be concerned with one's reputation and to wish to avoid persecution. We see this very quickly in just a few weeks from this account, that Peter said, I do not know the man. I do not know him. I do not know him nor know what you are talking about. Thrice Peter denied knowing Jesus and knowing his words and therefore was attempting to save his own life. Do you see the context here? He's, he's trying to seek to save his life by not being connected with Jesus Christ. He's trying to save his reputation. He's trying to save his actual life, his, his bodily life from not being put to death with Jesus. He is the fulfillment of what Jesus warned about, and yet Jesus will restore this man. 
Though Jesus does warn them against falling away, Jesus also gives his disciples great confidence in his power to cause them to persevere until the coming of the kingdom. By this passage, when Jesus says, there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, he does not mean the transfiguration, but rather he means that he will cause some of his disciples to persevere until the ascension of Christ, his own ascension, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the gospel going forth in great power through Pentecost and through the preaching of the apostles. He does not mean alone the second coming. And commentators are unanimous in their understanding of this if you read them before 1800s. Every commentator that I solicited maintained that the coming of Jesus Christ in great glory with the power of His angels refers primarily to His judgment against the temple. And that's why he says to them, there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until the kingdom comes. And yet we know that that wonderful first coming of Christ in power and glory was unto the warning of a second coming. Yes, truly, we believe as Christians that Jesus Christ not only visited Jerusalem in judgment, but he will one day come again with great glory and with the power of, and glory of his Father and of the holy angels. In fact, one of the great understandings of the purpose of Jesus' warning is to cause them to persevere even while they are being put to death and seeing their brothers and apostles and fellow Christians being put to death. That He is giving them words to cause them to persevere in hope that they will see the kingdom bearing fruit, that it will not be all for nothing. After these things, Jesus is desiring to show his glory to his disciples, and he ascended the mountain to do so. As we've been seeing, Jesus does not go up the mountain not knowing what will take place. He understands the importance of the revelation of God to his people on mountains, and so he goes up wanting to do this. The reason we know that Jesus went up intentionally to do something important was because Luke records that he took only Peter, James, and John. Many times throughout the gospel, Jesus does this in order not only to create an atmosphere of faith, but in order to isolate Peter, James, and John as a particular set of witnesses for the most important things in his life and ministry. In verse 28, it says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzlingly white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. The, the word there is exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Here, Jesus' transfiguration is the public demonstration of his fulfillment of all that which the law and the prophets foretold. Long ago, when Moses would go into the tabernacle, he would commune with God, and when he would come out, his face would shine because he had been with God, and so he used to put a veil upon his face so that the rest of the Israelites were not bewildered and terribly distraught, thinking that they too might accidentally fall under the judgment of God because this holy one, Moses, had, had come out from the tabernacle and was now radiating the glory of God. 
But though Moses' face reflected the glory of the tabernacle to the rest of the Israelites, here Jesus' face is shining with the glory of God, not as reflection, but as emanation. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says of the Lord Jesus Christ that He Himself is the radiance of the glory of God. Moses and Elijah here in this account are two witnesses. Every fact shall be established by two or three witnesses. And these are the symbolic embodiments of the law and the prophets. Moses, of course, is the embodiment of the law which is named Moses' law. And Elijah is the embodiment not only of the prophets who did signs and wonders, but the prophets who called God's people back to faithfulness. These two were testifying to the glory of the mission of Christ and the greater excellency of Jesus Christ's ministry compared with their own ministry. Jesus is surrounded by these two witnesses, Moses and Elijah. They they are standing with him and they are conversing with him and he is not in awe of their presence. They are in awe of his presence. As Jesus told the Pharisees, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced greatly. Moses and Elijah, perhaps this was the greatest gift that God had ever given to them to see the fulfillment of all that that which the Spirit had prompted within them and all that which they had written. They were not speaking about any particular thing, but Luke records that they were speaking of his departure, his exodus which, we, which he was about to accomplish. In the time of Moses, as he had brought the people out of Israel, he directed them by the glory of God through the following the cloud of, of smoke and the pillar of fire. Moses directed the people of Israel throughout his time in the wilderness, but he was never able to enter into the promised land. And in fact, the the Scriptures say that God took him up to a mountain and he let him look into the promised land. He was able to peer into the promised land, but he was never able to enter because of his single transgression in which he did not regard Yahweh as holy, but instead communicated anger, which was not God's anger, against the people's request, faithful request for water from the Lord. You see, Moses the most humble man of all the the Scriptures, apart from Jesus Christ, was not able to enter into the Promised Land. He was not able to finish the Exodus. And here he comes now speaking with the one who will accomplish the Exodus. He won't bring it 99% there and let his people walk in on their own. No, Jesus is going to accomplish the Exodus. Moses was not able to see the promised land but from afar, but now he sees the promised one who is going to bring about a real deliverance from real bondage. Israel was truly delivered from physical bondage, but they were never delivered from real bondage, bondage to sin. Elijah here worked miracles of power as we've seen throughout the scriptures, but he never saw Israel heed his words to come back to faith in Yahweh and to turn from their sins. But rather, now Elijah sees not only the true atonement, but the one who really will accomplish the deliverance for his people. Not only will Jesus perform a great exodus on the cross, but through the preaching of the apostles, he will bring about righteousness, true righteousness for God's people. 
This exodus of Christ includes not only His death, that is, His departure from this world, and His delivering of His people, but also includes His departure into the heavens in His ascension. Commentators are very clear to say, well, of course the word in the Greek being exodus means that we must connect it to what, Jesus, or what Moses had done in the exodus of Israel. But this word exodus, used three times in the New Testament, denotes twice a departure of death, but also it means a departure out of this world. And we, when we remember what Elijah did, it makes sense to us. Not only is Jesus going to die, but He is going to ascend. He's going to be raised from the dead, and He will then depart to the right hand of the Father. All that which the exodus from Egypt foreshadowed, Christ's death and resurrection actually truly accomplished by His death for the benefit and blessing of the people. If you've ever studied the history of the Egyptian people, you'll recognize that all of the plagues were a designed mocking by Yahweh of particular glories of the people of Egypt. They celebrated their crops. They celebrated their yields. They celebrated the various bugs that they had turned in, as Romans 1 tells us. They had turned into idols that they worshipped. And each one of the plagues had a particular sting. It was adding insult to injury. It was as if God would, in, in America, He would rain down hail made out of cash. That would be... <laughs> That would be one of the ways in which God would shame America if he was to do the, the, the exodus again. Each one of those not only destroyed Egypt, but it put them to shame. It mocked them. Likewise, in Colossians 2, Paul writes in verse 15 that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ's cross. In the ninth plague, it says that pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt was for three days. Likewise, at Christ's crucifixion, we know that the sun was darkened for three hours, and Christ himself, the light of the world, was in the tomb for three days. Just as in the final plague, God struck down the firstborn of all households, and yet Isaiah 53 says to us in verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. His only begotten Son. Just as God had delivered His people from bondage to Egypt, now Paul writes in Romans six twenty two, you have been set free from sin, and you've become slaves of God. In Deuteronomy twenty six verse eight, it says that surely He Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and on the cross, brothers and sisters. Do not miss this. Christ's arms were outstretched. He was accomplishing a deliverance for His people. These things are given to us that we might meditate upon them. Far greater, to echo Brother Andy's sentiments this morning, far greater than any picture could say, the words of the Scriptures demand that we utilize our understanding as we read the Word to see how God was for all time, throughout every dealings with his people, was saying something about Jesus Christ and the true exodus that he would accomplish. In verse 32, it says, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as, they, as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. 
Peter's outburst here reveals his lack of understanding of the significance of what took place. As I said earlier, Moses and Elijah, Jesus was not stunned that Moses and Elijah had appeared. Moses and Elijah were stunned that they could see the Christ in the flesh. Luke records that these disciples were awoken by Christ's glory, not the glory of Moses and Elijah, implying that Christ greatly outshined in brilliance and majesty his companions that day. But Peter's wish seems to wish to memorialize each of them equally. Moses and Elijah are speaking with Christ about his departure from this world, from life, and yet Peter wants to camp out and stay upon this mountain. There's a wonderful time in the, in the uh, book of Exodus when God tells them, you've been too long upon this mountain. It's time you journey to the sea. Think about that occasionally. It's a, it's a very important lesson. Peter here understands that Jesus is the Messiah. He had just quoted, you are the Christ of God. But he does not understand by faith with true knowledge of the surpassing glory of Christ. This is why I said earlier, unless God the Father reveals by His Spirit who Christ is to you, you cannot recognize Him just by learning facts about Him. Peter saw the Lord Jesus not only in His earthly ministry, but also in glory, and yet reckoned Christ equal with Moses and Elijah. There should have been one tent in Peter's desire. There really should have been no tents. But the point is, he equates them. He doesn't recognize the surpassing glory and excellency of Jesus Christ. In fact, I would say that so out of place are Peter's words, so, so wrongly guided, that they are actually little worth contemplating to gain any sort of spiritual truth. Those were the only inferences, and I tried to squeeze those words to understand what is, why did God include this, it, not only to warn us against presumptuous sayings, but also to help us understand that Peter did not recognize the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. Verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The Father here is proclaiming over Christ and for the benefit of the apostles and all of God's church, His identity, Christ's identity, and the approval of His life, ministry, and person as the only begotten Son of God. Though it is true that Christ as mediator is a servant of the Father's will, though He in Gethsemane did pray, not my will, but thy will be done, at the same time, God's Word says that He is a son over the house, not a servant over the house like Moses was. Here, Jesus being proclaimed from heaven as the Son of God, the Father is desiring to express the nature of His Son. Jesus Christ is the uncreated, eternal Son of God. As Nicaea puts forth, as we said this morning, God of God or God from God, light from light, true God from true God. That is to be understood as the same substance and the same essence with God. So perfect is the Father's begetting of the Son that He is not considered to be less than God, although begotten. So wonderful is this doctrine that the church preserved its unity over the centuries by excluding out those who would confess a difference about the person of Jesus Christ. 
the heretic Arius said or began to teach publicly that there was a time when Christ was not. And the words that came down from Nicaea as they recognized, not determined, here clearly, Nicaea recognized the faith, not determined the faith, that Jesus Christ always existed. They said that we ought to consider anathema those who say there was a time when Christ was not. And this is why it is such a tragedy to come back to my earlier scandal that I mentioned that 78% of evangelicals surveyed said Christ was a created being. I do hope, it is my earnest desire and prayer, that they do not understand the question and that they do not believe that thoroughly. The point that the Father is making by demonstrating this is my Son, as the other gospel writers say, in whom I am well pleased, and listen to Him, is the Father was demonstrating publicly for all time the, the identity of Jesus Christ as the God-man. Not just a man sent from God, like the patriarchs and prophets of old, but the one who was God in the flesh, God Himself. The Father proclaims that Jesus Christ is the chosen one, that is, the prophet of whom it was told long ago. In the midst of the second giving of the law, Moses prophesied about a true prophet. In Deuteronomy 18, 15, 18 through 19, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them, for the people of Israel, a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. This is what Jesus said, if you are ashamed of my words, if you are ashamed of me or my words, I will be ashamed of you when I come. Therefore, those who are followers of Christ must recognize the vital importance of hearing Christ's words daily. As the Father has thundered from heaven, listen to Him, He does not merely mean buy a Bible with red letters and read those words. No, He means not only listen to my Son, but everything which the apostles, the deputized representatives of Christ, have preached and written. This for Christ's disciples ought to be daily sustenance. If you eat every day, and I hope that you do, you ought to read the Word every day, not only for your sustenance, but for your maturity. There's a great difference between getting enough calories and getting enough nutrients. And many of us live on trite, trivial Christianese when we are given glorious, glorious food, delightful to the soul, delightful to the eyes in God's Word. Christ not only clearly taught in His time upon the earth, but He commissioned His apostles to go into all the nations, teaching everything that He commanded. Those very same apostles who beheld the glory of Christ preached boldly, and then they wrote down that message for us to hear. I want to end by reading 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21, because I think it gets to the heart of what I believe this passage is calling us to do. It's to recognize that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and it is Him we must listen to. Peter, the very same apostle who that day spoke extremely rashly, later wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
telling us to go to the Scriptures. Listen carefully in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And look where Peter goes. Verse 19, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what we have, brothers and sisters, in this word. It is not enough. You will not make it in your Christian walk if you hear the word of God on Sunday and Sunday alone. You will not make it. You have been given the words of the apostles faithfully preserved throughout the ages and handed down through the blood of the church. What do I mean by that? Hundreds of thousands of men have died to ensure that you have the apostles' words. But the most important fact is that the apostles' words tell you about the most important man who died, Jesus Christ. It is to him you must listen. And you hear him when you hear him through the word of God. So this is my calling to you this morning, that seeing the glory of Jesus Christ, even by distance through the written word, remembering what took place on the Mount of Transfiguration, let us hear and receive his words daily that we might be able to offer up the fruit of faith and obedience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your glory. We thank you that you sent your son not only to die in our place and in our stead, taking upon our guilt and shame, as we sang this morning, that our guilt and shame was laid upon his shoulders. Lord, we thank you that you not only give to us a great understanding of who he is by your word, but that we are aided daily. Father, I pray that your spirit would work among us as a people, that you would give us love for your word, that it would become the central joy of our lives, that communion with you in truth through your word would be the highest and greatest joy, and that we would be able to grow in our knowledge of the scriptures and our obedience of the same. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.